Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, thank you for having me here today. Volume level okay? Who's cranking it up? Okay. Um, thank you for having me today. Um, I was asked today to, uh, to give a, legal, uh, a talk on the legal toolkit for tech startups. That's a big topic to squeeze into 45 minutes. Um, thousands of lawyers, myself included, have spent their entire careers uh, trying to master all of the tools for uh, startups. So there are many topics I'm going to have to whiz over and skip. But I, I want to start today with um, not so much a legal issue, but finding and using lawyers. So just uh, anybody here ever dealt with a business lawyer before? Probably very few, very few. But it's a necessary uh, requirement uh, of, of your startup, uh, perhaps a necessary evil or evil necessity as the case may be. Um, because during the formative stages of your venture, it's very important to get things started right. You've got to get your business structure started right. You've got to get your relationships with your co-founders started right. You have to get your intellectual property on board uh, correctly. You have to get your financing right. And then once everything's running along OK, you're going to need your lawyer to do your big corporate deals, your corporate partnerings with Google or, or whoever, and ultimately to sell your company for uh, some nice reward at the end. So um, I'm going to start with uh, finding and using lawyers. And there's going to be, in most of your companies, well, you'll all need a corporate lawyer, a corporate transactional lawyer, someone who understands business structures, business financing, contracts, and that's what I do. Uh, and I'd like to introduce my colleague, Josh Geffen, from our Santa Barbara office. That's what he does also. But you'll also perhaps need an intellectual property lawyer. Now, are people generally familiar with the concept of patents and trademarks and copyrights, generally? OK. That's one yes. Um, <laughs> Your, um, if, your, if your new in endeavor involves a new invention, and that could be a mechanical invention or a, perhaps a business process or, or a computer-related invention, you'd want to get a patent on it. And that gives you a monopoly to practice that in the United States for 20 years and other countries for other periods of time uh, similar. In order to do that, you're going to need a patent lawyer. Um, and that's a separate and distinct discipline from a corporate lawyer. So at, at a minimum, you're probably going to be working with two lawyers. Now, when choosing a lawyer um, a, 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 and using one, um, you've got to look at your, your lawyer as sort of a valuable, uh, you know, a val a valuable counselor in, in your business, and not only uh, as a legal advisor. So. Uh, Looking out here, if you, most of you are too young to remember the Godfather movies, or anybody? Godfather movies? Sopranos? Sopranos, you know, you, you remember in the Sopranos? Um, what's his name? Silvio Dante, consigliere to, uh, to Tony Soprano, or Tom Hagen, consigliere to the Corleone family and Godfathers. It's a counselor. That's what your lawyer, you want your, lawyer, your business lawyer to be, your consigliere someone you, who will give you advice, honest advice, and you can confide in with, uh, with full confidentiality. 
Now, when choosing a lawyer, you need, you're, you're all going to be doing startup endeavors. You need to find someone who's knowledgeable in startups. You know, your, your brother-in-law who does divorces, not the right person. Your, uh, you know, maybe your classmate who now does criminal defense work, not the right person. You need someone who specializes 100% of the time in corporate transactions for early stage companies, emerging growth companies, startup companies, and the like. There are many around. Uh, there are many in town. There's, throughout California, there are, there are hundreds of them. Now, in addition to being familiar with the, the corporate matters, it's very helpful if your corporate lawyer has some familiarity with, your, with the space you're going to be operating in. For example, at our, um, as, as was mentioned, I primarily spend a lot of my time in the medical device area and pharmaceutical area. That's actually, I'm trained there scientifically. And so I can work with my clients and provide their legal needs, but also understand their business. Um, and so that, that's helpful if you find a lawyer who can do that for you. Uh, at a, some of our earlier meetings today, I got some questions about open source code software, about which I know almost nothing, but fortunately my colleague here does. And so when you're talking to people, feel them out not only about their legal abilities, but their, their industry uh, abilities. It's, it'll definitely be a plus. And of course, for your intellectual property lawyer, you want someone who knows your, your zone. Now, the other thing is that you're going to find many, many lawyers out there who can tell you you can't do this and you can't do that. Get rid of them. What you want is a lawyer who tells you, you can't do that this way, but we can meet your goal doing it that way. You need someone who is not a roadblock, but someone who is helping you meet your, meet your ultimate goals in your business. Um, and then lastly, that you're hiring, um, uh, even though you're hiring a lawyer, someone you have to have the right chemistry with, you're going to have other needs. You're going to have needs in employment law and real estate law when you lease something, and tax when you start making money, employee benefits when you start hiring a, a cohort of employees. So you want to make sure your lawyer also has some expertise in that area or access to expertise in that area. Now, lawyers are very expensive. I mean, lawyers generally bill on hourly rates, and those hourly rates are uh, in the several to many hundreds of dollars per hour, so it's not cheap. But there is a value added here, and uh, I look at it as the pay now or pay later. So now let's get to a couple of stories, and these are all out of my practice over the years, of entrepreneurs who didn't do it right at the beginning and suffered or suffered dearly. Um, for example, we had a uh, startup where two friends, they had been friends for a very long time, started up a business together. They decided they didn't need any agreements about how to run the business. They didn't need any agreements about how to split up the business if they came to uh, dispute or if one wanted to leave. And of course, as always happens, one of them wanted to leave and sit on the beach. The other wanted to continue to work. And so how do you split up the business? It got very ugly, litigation, lawsuits. That would have been solved had their lawyer insisted at the beginning that they enter into an arrangement which would govern that. Another situation, um, actually this came out of Santa Barbara, uh, just down the street. Um, the company was founded and the, uh, 
they started making their product. This happened to be a medical device product. They went through a number of rounds of financing, but then when the going got a little tough and the, the, the investors and the founders started batting heads with each other, turns out that the founders had never properly assigned the intellectual property to the company. So this company had raised $30 million on the basis that it owned some patents, and in fact, it did not truly own those patents. More litigation, more expense. Could have been fixed very early on, very early on. You know, you're going to be seeking money early on, and often your first, your first round of money will come from what we call friends and family, F and F. And you'll decide you need $50,000, $100,000, and maybe you're in a situation you could raise that from friends and family. And you decide sort of uh, home grow this, and you say, okay, you three people, you four people put in this money, and you'll own 10% of the company forever. Your 10% will never get diluted. Um, we had a company like that. It was in the healthcare services area. The first round of, of investors owned 10% of the company forever. So as the company grew and grew and grew, they never got diluted, and they never had to put in another penny. Made the company unfinanceable, unfinanceable. And ultimately, we had to come to a compromise with them to take them out. We had to pay them some more money, issue them some more stock uh, to get them to give up this permanent right to 10% to make the company financeable. Would have been avoided with even a semi-competent lawyer at the beginning. Um, and lastly, um, is uh, that there are a lot of tax implications to running a business. I'm sure you've probably taken, or many of you have taken a course that somehow touches on business taxation. Uh, and that the choice of, of how you form your business, whether it's a corporation or a partnership or a limited liability company, is vitally important to the tax consequences. You can be paying twice as much tax as you have to during the, during the course of your business if you choose incorrectly and you could be paying twice as much tax as you have to when you sell the company if you choose the wrong uh, entity. So again, start at the beginning, choose properly, get some good advice. Similarly, with, with your IP lawyer, your patent lawyer, there's a lot of things that can go wrong very early on. Missing a filing deadline. Now, deadlines are deadlines, and we all know there's some squishiness to, to a lot of them. Not when it comes to filing patents, for example. If you miss a deadline by one day, you're done. You're done. You don't have a patent. You don't have a financeable business. So crucial, crucial, crucial. Um, and there are many other things in the patent zone that, that need to be done properly at the beginning. So you need to choose the lawyer. You need to choose someone for a, a, the, the long-term relationship, not someone who's the cheapest at the beginning, not someone who you think is good enough for the beginning, but someone who will serve you as that trusted advisor for many, many years. Um, any good entrepreneurial lawyer knows that he or she is in for the long haul and is willing to make accommodations for your cash situation early on, generally. I assume that most of you will be somewhat cash constrained in the early days. Um, and so we're, we're able to work with that. Um, but ultimately, we expect to get uh, fairly paid, of course. And then personal chemistry pay, plays a part also. If you can't stand talking to the woman who's your lawyer, and she's not the right person for you. So there has to be at least some uh, chemistry there 
that works. Doesn't have to be your best friend, doesn't have to be your beer drinking buddy, but at least someone that you can be somewhat civil with. Now, you've hired someone dealing with that person. It's number one thing, time is money. Lawyers bill by the hour, and if you waste, waste his time with repetitive questions, with just aimless uh, meanderings of thought, it's gonna cost you money. It's gonna waste everyone's time, not a good idea. You also need to be realistic with your needs. Your startup endeavor is gonna be the number one thing in your lives. Um, you're gonna eat, sleep it. You're gonna, first thing when you get up in the morning, last thing when you go to sleep at night, you get up in the middle of the night with ideas about your startup endeavor, it's everything to you. Now, it is important to your lawyer also, but not quite that important. So do not expect to be able to call your lawyer any time of the night and day, any day of the week, and get an instant response. That's not gonna happen, and if you do that, you're gonna find yourself shortly being ignored. So be realistic with your needs. And in, uh, in connection with that, it's often useful in drafting agreements or drafting patents or, or any kind of thing where you're gonna come to the lawyer for legal advice, do some thinking in advance. Lay out some issues on a piece of paper, at least. Um, that saves a lot of time and a lot of money. By the way, I've adapted some of this from a friend of mine's website. There's John Greathouse, who I understand does teach here from time to time. And he has a website, which is there, infochaki.com, which is his musings on what entrepreneurs should know. And there's several of them that deal with uh, the legal aspects, and I've lifted some of this from John's, John's materials. Now, as I mentioned, I'm gonna go very, very quickly over this. First step, now that you have a lawyer and you've established that you have some relationship with the person, um, is decide what kind of company you need to, to form. And um, there's a lot of different ways of running a business. You could run it as a sole proprietorship, which is just you running a business. Uh, you could do a partnership, which is you and your friend running a business. Uh, you can do uh, different kinds of corporations that have different tax things or a limited liability company. The important thing, there's really only two drivers here. One is you do not want personal liability for problems in your business. If you're making a product and it blows up in someone's face, that's a problem and that financial liability is limited to the business. It's not yours. They can't come after your house or your, your car or anything else. So avoidance of personal liability is the number one point. And to do that, you get rid of column one, you get rid of column two. You're not gonna do business in those ways. The second driver is taxes. As I mentioned that earlier, it's gonna be, it depends on the nature of your business. A business which um, generates a lot of cash from the very beginning, and spins off a lot of cash that you wanna put in your pocket, in your investor's pocket, you don't want to be paying tax at the business level. You want that to simply pass through, be taxed once when it ends up in your pocket. Avoid what's called the double taxation, and that's an S corporation or a limited liability company. Uh, on the other hand, if you're gonna be um, investing a lot of money, you're gonna be seeking a lot of in investment from different kinds of people, 
uh, and not generating a lot of cash, the C corporation, which is a taxable entity, may be the better approach. There's no right answer for everyone. This is something that you and your council need to discuss. And uh, I think I'll just leave it there. If you have any more questions on this particular slide, ask Josh Geffen. So you've got your company, you've got your lawyer, you've got your company formed. It's now time to uh, make sure you have your intellectual property in line. Uh, intellectual property is a whole range of things. Um, it includes things that you customarily, traditionally think of as intellectual property, such as a patent. It also includes uh, copyrights, which are a government protection on written materials, essentially. It includes trademarks, which is a government protection on uh, the marks that you would use to designate your, your products. For example, I noticed about 30 Apple logos here. I can guarantee you that that Apple logo is probably the most heavily protected trademark in the world. Uh, trademarks particularly important if you're going to be doing a lot of consumer work, uh, selling to, to uh, uh, customers on the internet or in, re in real life. Less important if you're doing other kinds of technology work. Now, where are you going to get the, uh, and the last piece of intellectual property is what I call know-how or trade secrets. These are all the little things that you know about your business, how to operate it, maybe the secret formula to Coca-Cola, uh, often, very often, uh, source code is, is trade secret, uh, is protected by trade secret. It's important that you, you protect your trade secrets, keep them confidential, because if you don't keep them confidential and you're just let them out willy-nilly, you're no longer going to get the protection of the law on trade secrets. Mark them, stamp them as confidential. Don't give them to other people. Don't tell your secrets to other people without entering into a confidentiality agreement or what's called a non-disclosure agreement, sometimes called an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Now, so you've now sort of identified your, the, 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 we've identified the kinds of intellectual property we're dealing with and where are you going to get it from? The best place to get your intellectual property is your own invention. And uh, that's something that you, you've thought of, you've developed your own, you own it. That's the easiest thing in the world. For those of you who are in the business plan, how many people are going to be working on their own inventions? Few? Very few. Lucky few. Um, Alternative is you go and get someone else's invention or someone else's know-how, someone else's intellectual property, but you're going to have to pay them for that in some fashion. Uh, you're going to have to pay them a part of your company, maybe half your company. You're going to have to pay them cash. You're going to have to pay them a promise. You'll have to give them a promise to pay money in the future in, in terms of royalties on your sales, but it's going to cost you something. A subset of someone else's invention is an invention that comes out of the university. Um, and you know, I'll dwell on this a few, for a few minutes because we're here in a university setting and because it's an unusual hybrid. Um, those of you who are graduate students are, and employed by the university who make inventions in the course of your university work do not own your inventions. They're owned by the regents of the University of California. 
And if you want to build a business around them, you have to go to the regents of the University of California and get rights to do that. And that is done through the uh, technology, industry technology Industry Alliance here on this campus and similar offices on other campuses and other universities. So be very careful if you're doing work in the university environments to distinguish between what you're truly, truly doing on your own without university resources and what you're doing with university resources or in the university environment or with university supplied funding. Uh, because I can guarantee you that if it's a success, the regents of the University of California who are in desperate need of cash will come back and try to seek some compensation from you. Now, you've got your lawyer, you've got your business started, you uh, have your intellectual property, and all you need now to run your business is a little bit of money. How much? I guess it would vary. You know, there are early stage startups that have very uh, little need for capital that could bring a product from idea to selling on uh, the Apple Apps Store for, you know, five or $10,000. You don't need a lot of money. Things that involve hardware and actual physical embodiments, uh, equipment, tech equipment, it's going to cost a lot more. You know, it's tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring a, uh, something. Some industries, the industries I'm most familiar with, medical devices, for example, uh, it's millions of dollars. It takes millions and millions of dollars to develop a product. And if you really want to get extreme in the other industry I play in a lot, which is the pharmaceutical industry, the general number is $800 million to bring a successful pharmaceutical product to market, $800 million. So where are we going to get the money? Now, there's, uh, on this slide, there are six kinds of investors. And I don't know whether a prior speaker has spoken about kinds of investors. Have you heard about the different kinds of investors? Or should I spend a couple of minutes on that? OK, then I will. Um, the first is bootstrap. And that's your own money, your credit card, parents, whatever. But you're not going to find a lot of money that way. Next step is friends and family. Now, if you're lucky enough to have wealthy friends and a wealthy family, you could probably raise a couple hundred thousand dollars this way. But most of us are not quite so lucky to do that. Another approach is government and philanthropic grants. My guess here in this group, a um, lot of software, a lot of internet business, correct? Not too much in the way of healthcare products or clean technology. Uh, there's probably not a lot of government money and philanthropic grants uh, available for you. But if you are doing something in, in uh, healthcare, clean technology, uh, environmental, that is a possibility. possibility. So let's get where the real money comes from now. Uh, there are basically three categories. First is business angels. You can, everyone has heard of angel investors, Tech Coast Angels, Band of Angels in the Bay Area, and others. Uh, and these are groups of uh, fairly wealthy people. A lot of them nowadays were people who made money during the dot-com bubble of about 10 years ago and are now at a stage in their career where they like to uh, invest in early stage startups and keep in touch with technology. And they have, 
you know, willingness to invest uh, $50,000 or $100,000 each. And you can get a little group of them together, and, and you could raise half a million dollars. And that may well be enough for your companies. Uh, business angels are a little, it's a little bit hit and miss whether you can get them. Some, you know, they tend to uh, travel in packs and invest in packs and uh, invest in hot areas. Obviously, social media is probably now a big one um, for them. The problem with business angels is if you get eight of them, you're going to have eight bosses, eight people looking over your shoulder all the time, making sure you're using the money in the right way. And all of these people, all of these, they're generally male, and they're generally middle-aged, and they all, they've all run businesses, and so they all know how to do it. And they're all going to tell you night and day how to run your business. And it's a little bit stressful, a little bit stressful. Now we come to venture capital. This is sort of the gold standard that, you know, financed uh, Google, financed Facebook years ago, financed Netscape, and has been the main source of serious entrepreneurship money probably for the past 30 years. There's billions of dollars goes into venture capital every year. Um, we're fortunate here in Southern California that we are, or in California in general, we are really in the global hotspot of venture capital. There are many in the Bay Area, many in Southern California. There are some here in Santa Barbara with offices in Santa Barbara. Now, the problem with venture capital is, well, several problems. The first is you can't raise a small amount of money from them. If all you need is half a million dollars, forget it. They're not interested. They need to put significant amounts of money to work. For venture capital invested to work, they have to be able to invest oh, three, four million in the first round, 10 million in the second round, 20 million in the third round, and ultimately, as a group of uh, investors, have you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 million dollars at work in your company. If your company is not one that requires that amount of money and will grow to that kind of scale, venture capital is probably not your cup of tea. The other issue with venture capital, I'm sure a lot of you have heard the, t the term uh, vulture capitalists, that these people come in and they fund the companies and then throw the founders out, out of the door and take it over. Well, that does happen, uh, but it usually happens for a good reason, that unfortunately founders sometimes are not the best people to run the business on a long-term basis. And ultimately, the venture capitalists will own your company and will be your bosses and uh, will control your life. Last kind of investor you can get is strategic investors. And these are big companies that are in your industry um, and want to keep in touch with new trends uh, in, uh, in hardware, companies like uh, Intel or Motorola and software. Uh, companies like eBay all invest in, uh, in early stage startups. Uh, oftentimes there's some strings attached, like um, they'll have the right to distribute your product in the future, or they'll have the right to buy your company in the future. But it is money, and if you need it, you'll take it. And nowadays you never turn down money. Now, 
coming back to what your lawyer does in these cases, in each of these cases, your lawyer, who you've now established a good relationship with, will help you fund uh, or help you, a, a good entrepreneurial lawyer will help you find these sources. He or she will be tapped into the network of these financing sources and be able to put you in touch. No lawyer can guarantee that you'll get financing, uh, but it does help to have the right introductions at least. It may help you get in the door and seriously considered. Second thing the uh, lawyer is going to do is uh, document the deal. And in particular, when you're dealing with uh, friends and family, business angels to document a deal in the way that will allow future financings. In the venture capitalist situation, generally your lawyer will be your protector and will um, work to make sure that the deal that's cut and the documents that are ultimately uh, signed, the big stack of documents that are ultimately signed, uh, protect your individual rights so that in case you are fired from your own endeavor, you will be able to walk away with it with uh, some money and some ownership of your company. That's what your lawyer does. Now, you've built the company, you, things are going along okay, and it's time to do your important deal. It's time to do your corporate partnership deal with Amazon or your, uh, maybe even sell the company. And now we're talking about, in these big deals, a whole nother level of legal rigmarole. Uh, and sometimes you will feel like this, with those two gentlemen in the beginning being the two lawyers with armies of people behind them. Now, normally, if you're doing a, a, a deal with a big company, let's say that's on the left, the big company will have a big army behind. There will be R&D people. There will be... Uh, business development people, there'll be finance people, there'll be intellectual property people, there'll be human resource people, and on and on and on. There'll be a huge number of people behind their, that one spokesman with the big spear. On your side, you know, hopefully you'll have a crowd that big, but maybe a little smaller. But the point being here that you have to have some control over this process. And at this point, you know, after many, many late nights, many, many weekends, many missed family events, you want to make sure this is done right. Um, and so this is when you really become to rely on your corporate advisors and your lawyers. And also, hopefully by this time, you've uh, involved some more senior mentors, business mentors who understand your business space. Uh, so we're now doing the important deal. Every deal is different, but a few things. Again, I've gotten these from, from uh, Mr. Greathouse. Uh, the first thing is control of the process. You know, ideally, if you can control the process in terms of being the first one to put a term sheet on the table with terms of the deal, being the first one to put a draft on the table with what the actual deal document's going to look like, be the one who drives the process all the way, you're going to have a number of advantages. You don't always have this luxury, but if you can, uh, try it. You're going to have uh, a number of advantages, uh, and you'll win uh, more of the, the important, not the top-level arguments, but a, a number of the important arguments. It will also set the tone for the 
for the uh, transaction, um, whether it's sort of a collaborative, friendly tone, whether it's a very uh, adversarial tone, whether it's a very rush-rush deal, whether it's a little more contemplative uh, deal. Um, and you want to approach every one of these deals in the light of uh, fairness. Realize that you have your issues on your side, but the other side of the deal has issues also, and you have to recognize that and ultimately come to uh, a win-win approach, and, and that's what's going to uh, make it work. Now, I, I've been doing this now for, for uh, many years, and, and this win-win approach is sort of interesting. Just a couple of stories. I had a client many years ago, many, in fact, so many years ago, that this, this was a small software company, and they were going to sell their business to a company called Prodigy.net. I don't know, how many people even remember Prodigy.net? Yes, no one under the age of 30. <laughs> Prodigy was actually the first of the national internet providers, in a sense. It predated AOL. Um, and these two gentlemen had formed their company with a little bit of family money and a little bit of outside investor money, and they were going to sell their company. I don't remember exactly what they did. Um, I think it might have been bill paying online, which at that point was a very novel approach. So we were negotiating with, with Prodigy and negotiating and negotiating, and my guys would not give up a single point. And I'd take them aside. I said, you know, Jim or Bill or Joe, whatever his name was, you know, they sort of have a point. They really need that. I think perhaps you should consider conceding that point to, and keeping these others. And he said, Larry, you know, I went to a class in negotiation, and what I learned was say no until your tongue bleeds. Well, this guy said no until his tongue bled. Prodigy walked from the deal, and his company went bankrupt, and he ended up with a zero. So win-win. You're not going to win every point. On the other side of the deal, or the other side uh, example, is I had another company, this happened to be in the medical device area, um, a guy, one of the nicest guys I've ever met actually, formed his company, it was family business, and he, it was, he was doing okay, and he was making, you know, they had $10 million of revenue or something, it was a nice little family business. He decided, uh, you know, for estate planning purposes and the like, he wanted to sell the business, and he was going to sell it to one of the big national players in his particular industry. At that point in time, the company, the buyer company, was controlled by a pair of Wall Street finance types. Imagine Gordon Gecko, two of them. Um, and they were represented by a lawyer who was a big Wall Street New York lawyer. And my guy was totally reasonable. But the other side was, kept grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. And every, at every twist and turn, they wanted more. And this deal was set up so that he would sell his company for an amount, let's just say $10 million, which he'd get up front. And then if the company did well in the hands of the buyer, he'd get another $10 million. That's called an earnout. And um, as you can see, there's a little bit of tension there because my guy's second $10 million depends on how well the buyer runs the company. So these are difficult negotiations always, but these were much more difficult than normal. And, uh, but we were getting down near the end, and we were sitting in, in New York, in midtown Manhattan, and the other side was just grinding away and grinding away, 
And he said, Larry, let's go for a walk. And it was one of those beautiful April days in Manhattan, those of you who've been there. Um, and we were across through Central Park. We went through Central Park in the spring. And he says, you know, Larry, I know this is a good deal, but I just could not sleep comfortably at night. There would be no repose. So he walked from the deal. And the other side lost the deal, at least temporarily, as you'll see, because they just pushed too hard. And fortunately, my guy had the financial wherewithal and the comfort to say, no, the deal's not for me. I can't sleep at night. I'll go on. As it turned out, because sometimes the good guys do win, the, um, this company that was run by the two, the two New York Wall Street financier types got in trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission and the New York Stock Exchange and ultimately were uh, pushed out of the company. And they took their lawyer with them. And the company became run by someone, an industry person, who happened to know. Came back, and he offered my guy $13 million, all up front, no earn out. So instead of 10 plus 10, it was 13. My guy says, fine. I can sleep. I'm comfortable with these people. Everything was fine. And what happened was the, the business did extraordinarily well in the hands of the buyer. So my guy would have got his 10 million plus 10 million. So he left $7 million essentially on the table. Uh, but he was perfectly happy about that because he could sleep at night. And, and just as a, as a closer, the two Wall Street guys, they got in trouble with the SEC. And I believe one of them went to jail. And their lawyer, who was a big time lawyer, very big time at a very well-known national law firm, is now in jail also for having uh, defrauded his firm and his clients out of expense money. <laughs> so the good guys win. The point B, what is the point here? Oh, the point here is a win-win approach. So two examples, one in which my client didn't want a win-win approach and lost the deal. Another in which uh, my client insisted on the win-win approach, waited a little, things changed, and he got what he wanted. Um, very unfortunately, he retired uh, to his ranch in Colorado and uh, became interested in experimental aircraft, and that didn't work out too well. Um, lastly, uh, on the important deal, you want to make sure that whatever you do in your deal during the course, uh, if you're going to continue to run the company and, and have this relationship with the big company, um, you want to avoid what we call poison pills. These are things that will really impair your ability to sell your company or finance your company, such as granting exclusivity to everything and everything to, to your partner, leaving you nothing left to sell or develop, locking up new intellectual property so that anything new you develop is owned by your partner, uh, giving your partner rights of first refusal so they can come in and snap up all your new stuff. Pretty much anything that impairs the sale of your company, you want to stay away from. Now, now we get to the good part. So you've got your lawyer, you formed your company, you've done your business, you've done maybe a couple of big deals, and it's time to sell the company and make some money. This is, I assume, everyone's goal? Yes. Okay. Uh, so how do you sell your company or how do you liquidate your position with a company? Well, there's really basically two ways, two successful ways. There's any number of unsuccessful ways, but there's two successful ways. One is to sell your company, and that's what happens to most tech startups, uh, most startups of any kind, uh, tech or not. 
and uh, very few go public. While many, most people think that going public is sort of the holy grail of this process, in a sense it is, notwithstanding Facebook not wanting to go public, and Groupon not wanting to go public in the near term. But very few companies go public. This is a history of IPOs in the United States. Starting in 1999, there were 400, almost 500 IPOs. This was the dot-com bubble, 99, dot-com bubble in 2000. Dot-com bubble burst. And uh, you can see in 91, uh, things were very, very poor. Um, and it came back a little bit uh, in the mid-90s, but then with the financial crisis of 2008, went to almost zero and is now generally starting to come back. But um, the point of this slide is to show you that an IPO is probably not in the cards for your business. I wish it were, but it's probably not. Um, in 2010, there were 154 IPOs in the United States. Of those, about 40%, I believe, 35, 40% were technology companies. The rest were finance or retail or consumer goods uh, or real estate. So 40% of that is, what, uh, seven, uh, 60 companies? 60 tech companies went public, and of those, you know, a good number of them were very mature companies that maybe had been growing privately for many years. Very few of those are early-stage tech startups, so don't count on an IPO. What you're going to do with your startup company is to sell it. And now here is where your lawyer is going to earn all of her money. Uh, both um, actually in terms of billings and also uh, figuratively in terms of value provided to you. Let's talk about the different kinds of selling. Um, there's a fire sale. Company's not doing well. You're going to go bankrupt, sell it, move on. There's the success. Company's a success and you're going to sell for a very high valuation. You're going to put a lot of money in your pocket. You're going to become one of those business angels who invests in other companies uh, and uh, tells other people how to do it or comes and gives lectures and, of course, donates to the University of California Santa Barbara Tech Foundation with some of that. Uh, but most, uh, most are, uh, are not any of those. Many of them are what we call the walking wounded. These are companies that are successful. You're making money. Some years, maybe you're losing money, but you're not growing your business. You're paying your salary, but that's about it. So it's time to sell. Now, when it's time to sell, who's going to buy your company? So really three kinds of buyers for tech companies. There's the strategic buyer. This is the company in your industry who wants to add your product to its portfolio. Uh, and I can imagine all of you know your business models and you know who those strategic buyers are. It varies from industry to industry, but uh, they are very self-evident. There are financial buyers. These are companies, nowadays the term would be private equity fund or hedge fund. These are companies that buy companies strictly for their financial return. So if your company is one that's growing and making money, um, you might find one of these financial buyers to cash you out. And then lastly, there's sort of the roll-up buyer, uh, and that's generally a financial fund, 
private equity fund that goes out and buys a lot of little companies and puts them all together into one big strategic company. Most entrepreneurial companies, tech-based companies, are sold to strategic buyers because they generally, on a standalone basis, don't make enough money for the financial buyers to be interested. Uh, and you might find a roll-up buyer, but it's pretty much the strategic buyer. Now, when it comes to selling your company, you get deep into legalisms here. You're going to sell your stock, or you're going to do a merger, you're going to sell assets. All of that relates to a tax analysis of how much money ultimately ends up in your pocket, which is all that really counts. Uh, and here, again, is where your corporate uh, attorney, your tax advisors are going to be very, very helpful. Uh, in, in all likelihood, you are not going to get the amount of money for your company that you think it's worth. Or to put it the other way, your buyer isn't gonna, doesn't think that, isn't going to pay enough that you think your company's worth. So you're sitting there at X, the buyer's sitting there at Y, much lower. How are we going to bridge that gap? The way we bridge that gap or as one investment banker once told me, that difference in value expectations she called valuation dissonance, which I love as a business school term. That how are we going to bridge this valuation dissonance? Well, we do it by what's called the earnout. I mentioned that in the course of my uh, description of my medical device company uh, executive. And this is probably the single hardest legal issue to deal with in the sale of your company because there's no right answer, no wrong answer. But what you're doing is you're selling your company and you are leaving behind some of the value on the expectation that your buyer will do a good job of running your company without you. Uh, and as you could imagine, your buyer wants freedom to run the company as it sees fit. And there's a tension there that will ultimately be overcome by, you know, three or five pages of legal, what appears to be mumbo-jumbo, but is important, and um, will guide what happens to your business in the hands of the buyer. Now, buyers and sellers really like earnouts. To be honest, lawyers hate them. Because many of them, in fact, most of them, end up in disputes. You'll never get as much money as you thought you should have gotten, and you're always going to blame the buyer. Didn't do a good job of running the company. Had you released version 3.0 on time, I would have made my $10 million earn out, and it's your fault. Almost always uh, involve disputes and often involve litigation. So it's uh, sort of a nasty business, but one that we do nevertheless. Uh, just uh, sort of, we're sort of on time. Uh, just very briefly, the process of selling your company, you'll do some term sheets, you'll do some due diligence, you'll deal with that army of people behind your investor, uh, you'll identify some key issues, and ultimately you'll ink the deal, close the deal, take the money, and go on to your next endeavor. And hopefully you've made a relationship with your lawyer, and so when you do that, you will call her again or him again and do it one more time. I have, in my practice, with one client, I'm working on the fourth company that he has started and sold. So that's what we do. Now, I think that's about the time allotted for my 
prepared remarks, as they say. So uh, questions? How do you want to handle questions, Bill? Yes, sir. Uh, this has to do with uh, drug distribution and the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you qualified the second part of that. Uh, so what is stopping... I've been watching Breaking Bad. Breaking so Bad. I, <laughs> I know a lot about drug distribution. Excellent. All right, I'll have to talk to you after. <laughs> so what is stopping pharmaceutical companies, companies from stopping the distribution of online drugs, uh, drug stores that are selling their drugs illegally? or at a much cheaper price than in the U.S.? Um, well, there's, uh, there's not a lot that the pharmaceutical companies can do. From the pharmaceutical company's point of view, is that they can manage that through managing their own distribution channels. They sell to their distributors, and they try to make sure that those distributors don't uh, siphon off uh, inventory to an online uh, pharmacy. Uh, and that it all goes to the true brick-and-mortar pharmacies, which is the traditional way that pharmaceuticals have been sold. In terms of preventing knockoffs, and not real goods, but knockoff goods, that is an intellectual property challenge that they simply have to monitor. They have entire departments, these big companies, entire departments that monitor online sales, and when they see something that looks a little bit fishy, they call up a lawyer, and they go after them. It's a never-ending battle. In terms of imports, and the, obviously imports from Canada where drugs are sold uh, sometimes at a lower price, that, that's very much a political issue because those are obviously not gray market goods. They're not uh, phony goods. They're real goods. They're the same pills that you take here. Um, and uh, there's a lot of political dispute over whether that should be okay or not, and I'm not going to get into that argument. Well, we'll have to see where the Health Care Reform Act bill goes. But uh, I'm not going to deal with politics. <laughs> I have my own opinions. Yeah, there's, who has the microphone? Here. Um, question over here. You talked a lot about how it's important early on to find a lawyer for your venture. Yes. And I was wondering if you're just like two or three college kids uh, who probably don't have a lot of cash when is it really imperative to find a lawyer, or are there lawyers who like will work, like who are more familiar with that situation? Um, you were about to say who will work for free, but you stopped before you, before you said that. Um, that's a difficult difficult situation because lawyers, uh, as uh, Abraham Lincoln said, a lawyer has only one thing to sell, and that's his time. And as much as we like working with young entrepreneurs, and I do it all the time, there's just a limited amount of time that we can devote to doing that. Um, and so we become somewhat selective in who, who we work with. So in order to maximize your ability to get uh, a good lawyer, I mean, you've got to have a crisp business plan that makes sense, that's financeable. You should have done your homework on your industry, done your homework on your intellectual property, done your homework on some of these legal issues so that when you talk to that lawyer, you can say, well, we've analyzed our business plan, and we think that uh, from a tax point of view, the LLC approach will be good. That will impress the person you're talking to as opposed to, huh, what do I do now? Um, in terms of the cost, in terms of identifying the person, uh, ask around. 
ask uh, the people in the, in the uh, technology uh, gr uh, management group here, uh, in entrepreneurships, ask potential investors, ask uh, perhaps uh, colleagues who've gone on and done some work, or you can always just call Josh. <laughs> Um, in terms of paying, that, that's, that's always a difficult issue. We realize that um, there's not a lot of money. On the other hand, we realize that Mark Zuckerberg started in exactly the position you are in now. So um, for the right people, most entrepreneurial lawyers will take a chance and invest some time and hence invest uh, basically waive fees or at least defer fees for the right people who really seem serious and knowledgeable and on the path to success, but uh, not for people who are not prepared and not for people who appear to be flaky. So it, it is a challenge and there's no perfect answer, but the more prepared you could be, the better off your chances of succeeding to find, uh, find someone good who will make you a, a financial accommodation that works for you. My question is, do you deal with international uh, lawyer? Um, international what? Lawyer oh, protection. Yeah. Um, last summer, I just went back to uh, Vietnam, and um, I just have a question about like, how the lawyer represent the construction company right. that they build like, huge like, condos and uh, low costs, right. but they have a huge profit. So the lawyer represent the company or... Uh, customers of Vietnamese people? Well, when you're dealing internationally, obviously it's a whole different body of law. And um, as I mentioned, um, you know, the, an ideal lawyer for your startup is one who not only understands your business and everything, but has other resources available. And I mentioned employment law and tax. But one of the things I didn't mention is access to a network of international lawyers. Because if you're going to do a if you're going to do a deal um, in, a, in another country where, for example, you're contracting with a manufacturer of your product or you're contracting with someone to distribute your product in another country, um, and in particular, if that contract is going to be governed by that foreign, company, foreign country's law, you absolutely need a lawyer in that country to look out for your interests. And... Um, I know it's a real burden, you know, particularly if you're dealing in four or five different countries, you as an entrepreneur to try to coordinate all that. That's what your lawyer, your U.S. corporate lawyer should be doing. She'll have a network of people, um, either inside their law firm or through connections. There are various international legal networks. We're a member of one, but there are several. Um, but it's important that you get local counsel in particular in the technology zone, because in many countries, actually many, in some countries, intellectual property is not as well respected and well protected. So that if you do the wrong thing and let some, for example, some of your confidential trade secret know-how, your secret formula, into the wrong hands in certain countries, that could, they could then start creating knockoffs and you have very little recourse of going after them. So important, uh, I know I haven't answered your question too well, but it's important. The important thing is, yes, you do need local counsel. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.